Hi, I'm Marty. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here at Chatsworth Presbyterian Church. Let's, uh, let's pray as we start. Father God, please give us wisdom today as we think about the Orthodox Church. Please help us to hold ourselves accountable to your word and please help us to love you and your son all the more as we consider what you have done for us. Amen. Welcome today to our second talk in this short series on the other major branches of the Christian tradition. Last week we thought about the Roman Catholic Church and today we're looking at the Orthodox Church. Now, if you're anything like me, you think of the Orthodox Church as the other, other Christian branch. You know, the other one that isn't Roman Catholic. But all you know is that they don't have a Pope and the rest is a mystery. Here in Australia, the Orthodox Church isn't as prominent as the Protestant and Catholic traditions. And so we, we generally are less familiar with them. And for a Protestant like me, from the outside, their practices can look very similar to the Catholic Church. So is orthodoxy just Catholicism without the Pope? Well, no. And if we want to connect with our orthodox family members and friends, it'll help to not label them like that. Now, some of you might have an orthodox background, but for the rest of us, I suspect that we really don't know where our orthodox friends are coming from. And so we're ill-equipped to share the gospel with them. So let's try and change that. Well, a few facts. Today there are approximately 260 million Orthodox believers in the world and, and three quarters of Orthodox believers are found in, in Europe. But there are significant populations in the Middle East uh, and also in places like Egypt and Ethiopia. There are a number of, of subgroups in the Orthodox tradition the two most common being the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is uh, groups like the Greek Orthodox Church and the Russian Orthodox. And the other main grouping is the Oriental Orthodox Church. And that's churches like uh, the Coptic Orthodox Church in Egypt or the Armenian Apostolic Church. And you can find them right here in Chatswood. Now today, when I use the word Orthodox, I'm referring to all of these churches as, as one big group. But of course, the Orthodox Church is ancient and huge and varied. And the individual experiences and beliefs of Orthodox people that we know will vary widely. So what makes the Orthodox Church distinct? The word Orthodox literally means correct belief and correct worship. The Orthodox Church sees itself as the guardian of true belief about God and true worship of God. And it claims to preserve the original faith that Jesus' apostles handed down. Now let's go back to the start and take a tour through history. Jesus died and rose again around AD 30 and then ascended into heaven. The apostles then travelled around the Mediterranean, spreading the message of Jesus and starting churches. But after the disciples who knew Jesus 
died out, the church was left with a challenge. How would they preserve the truth about Jesus accurately? Now, to defend the truth, uh, early Christian thinkers, uh, guys called the church fathers, they had to grapple with a particular big question. The question was, how can we rightly understand Jesus? How can we rightly understand just who he is, this, this man who is both human and divine? I mean, how does that even work? Is he, is he all God? Is he all human? Is he some sort of half-half blend? These were big questions, and answering these questions was a dangerous task because the, the truth of the gospel was at stake. So to try and sort out um, uh, these questions, the early church met together in what they called ecumenical councils. Ecumenical simply means that, that everyone was there or all the bishops were there, the whole church was represented. And these councils are seen by the Orthodox Church as, as times when the whole church was united together to decide what was correct. The first of these councils was in AD 325 at a place called Nicaea. And one of the things that came out of that council was the Nicene Creed. You might have heard of it. There was also another six of these ecumenical councils over the next 450 years. And, and the Orthodox Church today looks back on these seven ecumenical councils as a great work of the Holy Spirit in preserving the truth. And the decrees and the creeds of these councils are central to their faith. Okay, what else was happening in, in those first few centuries after Jesus? Well, outside the church, the world was undergoing huge changes, huge changes that reflected an east-west cultural divide. When Jesus was alive, the Roman Empire stretched across the Mediterranean from east to west, but it just kept getting bigger and bigger and harder and harder to manage to the point that in AD 286, a second capital was set up in Byzantium, now called Constantinople. Another capital in addition to Rome to, to rule over the east. But this east-west divide wasn't anything new. Culturally, the east had always been much more Greek and, and the west was Latin speaking. After the division of the empire, there were fewer and fewer people who spoke both Greek and Latin. Communication between their cultures just dropped off. And inside the church, there had always been tensions between Rome in the west and the other major Christian centres, places like Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria in the east. The west claimed that the Bishop of Rome held the most honour among bishops. He was the successor of the Apostle Peter, after all. But the other bishops said, no, no, we share the responsibility to look after the church equally. And this east-west tension continued to build until finally in, in AD 1054, Pope Leo IX claimed that he had full authority over all the other bishops. Well, the bishops of Alexandria and Antioch and Jerusalem, they didn't like that. They said, no, you don't. Pope Leo excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople, the head of the church there. And he, the Patriarch, promptly excommunicated the Pope back. And that caused what is called the Great Schism. 
Of course, it wasn't as simple as I'm making it sound. A key issue in this division was over words that the Western Church had added to the Nicene Creed. These words were to do with the relationship between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The original Nicene Creed stated that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. In the Western edition, the words that they added was that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, yes, but also the Son. The Eastern Church didn't accept this addition. They felt the West was trying to specify something about God that wasn't well understood. It should be left as a mystery. The East said, you're mucking up how we understand God. The West said, you're destroying order in the church by rejecting the authority of the Pope. From this point forward, the Eastern and Western churches went their different ways. Now, this disagreement illustrates a difference in approach of Eastern and Western Christianity. It's a difference that plays out today. From the Orthodox perspective, this East-West split is about your mindset as you think about God. Eastern Christianity has a perception that Western Christianity is, is mechanistic and cold. The West thinks it can explain all the details. It's all about the mind and, and no heart. Whereas the East, they're, they're happy with mystery. You can know God through experiences in the church. You, you don't always have to describe him to the last detail. The mind and the heart work together. Now, most of us here in church today belong to the Protestant tradition. So here's something to keep in mind. The Orthodox Church sees Protestants as belonging to that Western tradition, along, along with the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, to, to wrap up this lightning journey through the past, uh, after this split in 1054, the Orthodox Church continued to spread out to the north and east into Europe. And the Russian Orthodox Church uh, started in AD 988 with the conversion of Vladimir, Prince of Kiev. By the, by the 1400s, the Orthodox faith could be found in most of Eastern Europe. It's, it's a broad, complicated history. It's a long history, bound up with culture and politics. And today, for Orthodox believers, faith will often be bound up with national identity. But I want to point out two things from this history. Two things. Those seven ecumenical councils and, and the church fathers are vital for the Orthodox Church. And secondly, that East-West divide in ways of thinking. These two aspects help to explain two areas where Orthodox belief has diverged from what the Bible says. Two areas. I'll call them the two A's. That is, authority and assurance. Firstly, authority. The Orthodox Church would say that its ultimate authority is God. But how do you know God? How do you hear him speak? And how do you decide what God means when he speaks? For the Orthodox Church, authority comes from what they call sacred tradition. 
and a record of the Holy Spirit's activity in the church is found in this sacred tradition. This sacred tradition includes the books of the Bible, but it also includes other things. The writings of the early church fathers, the creeds and decrees of the seven ecumenical councils like the Nicene Creed. Sacred tradition includes the liturgy of the church, that is, the prayers and hymns and sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper. They call that the divine liturgy, the Lord's Supper. And sacred tradition includes the icons of the church, images of the apostles, Mary and the saints that they use to meditate and pray. Through all of these things, together as one organic whole, through them you can connect with God. The Holy Spirit, they believe, inspires them all. You can know God through sacred tradition. And so this tradition carries the authority of God. They say your interpretation of the Bible must agree with the whole of sacred tradition. Uh, there's an Englishman who became an Orthodox monk. monk. His name is, is Timothy Ware, and he sums it up like this. He says, the Bible is not something set up over the church. It is something that lives and is understood within the church. Now, this view can be traced back to a particular understanding of what the apostles were doing when they travelled around the Mediterranean starting churches. The Orthodox Church would say that the apostles passed on their power and authority. The bishop, bishops of Rome and Jerusalem and all the rest, they, they have the same power and authority of those apostles right down to this day. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say that the apostles were handing down to the next generation? Let's look at what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. What is it that Paul passes on here? Do you see it there in verses 3, 4 and 5? He passes on a message, words. He tells them good news. Jesus died for sin, rose again and appeared to many. It is a complete message. It's sufficient to save them. So what should the church hold on to? The word, this word that Paul preached to them. You see, tradition is only healthy as long as it conforms to this word. Even Paul himself submits to the authority of the gospel word. He says in the book of Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
The Bible says that God reveals himself, not primarily through the church and its activities, but through scripture, through the Bible. God himself speaks to you from the page as he tells you what he has done in Christ. By hearing and responding in faith, you submit to his authority. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, that is, for Timothy, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is breathed out by God. It is his word. It's not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. The Apostle Peter, he groups Paul's letters with the other scriptures. He says this in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Here, he's, he's equating Paul's letters with the word of God, like the rest of the Old Testament. The whole Bible, Old Testament and New, is God speaking. Now, is the church important? Absolutely. We are not saved to be Christians in isolation. We are, we are the body of Christ. We grow together. But God speaks into the church and over the church through the Bible. Sometimes there will be disagreement over what the Bible means. But every Christian has the privilege and responsibility to humbly read the Bible for themselves. God's Holy Spirit works in every Christian through his word, not just in the church fathers or the early councils. Every Christian must hold themselves and hold the church accountable to God's word. That's where God's authority truly lies. So that's issue number one, authority. And the second issue, do you remember? The second A is assurance. What is our assurance of salvation based on? What is the foundation of a good relationship with God? Is it something you've done? Or is it something done for you? The Orthodox Church says a good relationship with God is bound up in what you do in your life in the church. But the Bible says your salvation is achieved solely, only by what Jesus has done for you. Now, according to Orthodox teaching, Adam and Eve, right at the beginning, were set on a path towards God at creation. They didn't have a perfect relationship with God yet, but they were heading that way. So in Orthodox thinking, at the fall, Adam and Eve experienced corruption and death. But they didn't really experience guilt for breaking God's law. Sin is a problem, yes, but the solution is really to get back on the path to life and be more godlike. In the Orthodox Church, Jesus is their solution. He is God incarnate. 
He is the perfect man. He lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. He died and rose again to beat death and give you life so that you can now imitate him. But in the orthodox understanding, Jesus didn't die in your place. He wasn't a blood sacrifice to pay for the guilt of your sin. He, he, he opens the door to getting back on the path towards God. But you follow this path only through the life of the church. You enter through baptism. You grow spiritually through their divine liturgy. Remember, that's the, the Lord's Supper. You, you pray to the saints for help along the path. You imitate Jesus. And your connection with God depends on these things. Now, don't get me wrong. Imitating Jesus is a wonderful thing to do. It's, it's what God calls us to do. But the Orthodox Church confuses this with your basis for salvation. The assurance of your salvation depends on you at the end of the day. But what does the Bible say? Well, it says that Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship with God in Eden. But they rebelled against God. They disobeyed his law. And every human since does the same thing, which leaves us guilty of law-breaking. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says this, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And so our guilt before God needs to, be, needs to be put right. We need to be declared not guilty. The Bible says we need to be justified. And that's exactly what Jesus achieves for us by taking the punishment for our law-breaking on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 say this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we see that Jesus is a substitute for us. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. On the cross, Jesus, he subs in for me, and you, and, and takes, our punish, takes our punishment and takes God's anger. Yes, Jesus' life and death are an example for us to follow as we live, but as we live in response to already being saved. Our right relationship with God, our intimate connection to God, is based solely on what Jesus has done. And the brilliant thing is that justification is not alone. We are also sanctified. That is, we, we are set apart to live a life of, of growing Christ-likeness as we wait for him. And so we do have a new life now. We do live a life of godliness now. But again, our assurance is based fully on what Jesus has done, his completed work. It's not based on anything that you or I do in the church. You see, by not submitting their sacred tradition to the word of scripture, the Orthodox Church confuses justification and sanctification. And the result is you can never be sure of how close to God you really are. 
So can you see these two fundamental problems with orthodox teaching? Holding sacred tradition as their final authority over the Bible and saying your status before God depends on what you do in your life in the church. But God says, hear my voice in scripture. Trust in my son who died and rose for you and come to me. Be assured that I love you and, and that you can live with me forever. Friends, this is a message that, like everyone else in the world, our orthodox friends need to understand. So how can we lovingly share this truth? Well, the temptation might be to sit down with your orthodox friend and say to them, now, I heard a talk this week about how your church has got it all wrong in these two ways. See, there are two A's. But instead, let me suggest three ways we can lovingly share our assurance. Very simple. Listen, pray and read. Firstly, we should listen. Many Orthodox believers that we know will be devoted to their faith. They will have a great reverence for Jesus. They will have a desire to be close to God. They will love his church. Others may be more nominal, identifying as Orthodox because of their nationality, but not really being involved in their church. And, and yet others may just be outright atheists who simply need to hear the gospel. Friends, to know, we need to listen. We need to know where our friends and family are spiritually. There will be a broad spectrum in the Orthodox Church. Some may know very little about Jesus. and Other people may, may be able to re recite the events of his life better than you can. So before we go in with, with all of our Protestant guns blazing, we need to listen to what people already believe. And then secondly, pray for them. Pray for the Orthodox Church worldwide. Pray for their bishops and their theologians that they would submit to God's word. Pray for, pray for a reformation of Orthodox teaching. But pray too for the individuals that you know. I think during this time of pandemic, many Orthodox churches have had to give up some of their most fundamental, deeply held practices. For Orthodox believers taking part physically in the liturgy of the church, that is, that is their connection with Jesus himself. The divine liturgy is their source of life. When churches are shut down due to COVID, their connection with God is cut off. So pray for opportunities with those who feel this, feel this deeply, who feel spiritually disconnected, who may be asking questions. You have good news for them. They aren't cut off. Jesus offers full and free connection with God, regardless of buildings and liturgy, if they put their trust in him. And finally, if your Orthodox friend or family member shares your love for Jesus, read the Bible with them. Read. Offer to grow with them in their knowledge of Jesus and what God says. Model the truth that listening to God's word is the right response to God. Demonstrate what it means to open the word and sit under it. Not to prove a point, not to show how reformed you are, but to, to be a blessing to yourself. 
to, to, to seek to bless your friend as you share together in what God says to you. Friends, God has spoken to the world a message of full and free salvation in Jesus. I hope you found it interesting to look at that other, other branch of the Christian tree. But remembering that message, more importantly, my prayer today is that we would listen, that we would listen all the more closely to God's message, that we'd have assurance in our connection with God and that we would point our Orthodox friends to the assurance they can have by putting all their trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the Lord of history. Thank you for your prophets and apostles who brought your word to us. Father, most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, God incarnate, our perfect sacrifice and life giver. Please give us wisdom as we speak to our Orthodox friends and family. Help us to always point to Jesus in what we say and do. By your Holy Spirit, please help us to display the assurance we have of being fully secure with you. Please save our family and friends and shape them by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.